0: Welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your hypnotic count, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries. I am joined by my fanged co-host and wife, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann.
1: Hey, sexy.
0: I have a feeling you have a certain attraction to vampires.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. All that romance and... Wait, wait, they don't sparkle, do they? Not today. (laughs) Okay, good. All that romance and that sexiness. Yeah, I like me some vampire. Okay, well, I'm sure you'll enjoy
0: this episode then. Awesome. But I was trying to come up with the perfect joke for you today, Goldie Ann. Oh, God. However, vampire joke can be a pain in the neck. You're a pain in the neck. I try, I try. I want to entertain you.
1: (laughs) Blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Not once in my life have I ever said blah, blah, blah.
0: (laughs) Never, 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 never. But today's episode does contain stories about disease, deaths, and the undead. Some of the details can be disturbing. We are storytellers who have gathered together information on some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Sounds like it. Listener discretion is always advised. Vampires are a popular part of legends such as Dracula or Vlad the Impaler. They make up a vast amount of folklore and can be seen in an overwhelming number of movies. These creatures of the night are often portrayed with fangs dripping with blood as they prey upon humans with the sole purpose of drinking their blood. Not falling in love? No, the true act of vampires is a little bit different than what you're thinking, dear. (laughs) Regrettably... They were also considered to be a very real threat upon New England during the beginning of the 19th century and the blame of destroying entire families. Newspapers of the time used the phrase vampire for these deaths. Likely they were influenced by the vampire beliefs in parts of Eastern Europe. The attacks on families in New England were different from the vicious and savage attacks told of by the European versions of vampire stories. These New England vampires would attack from beyond the grave psychically rather than being conducted by walking undead creatures of the night. Wow. The resulting deaths would be the same and the effects would spread throughout the community. Today, we take a walk within the mist and discover the stories of the New England vampires. Chapter 1 The Vampires of Europe The beginning of our story does not start in New England, but rather Europe, most specifically the countries of Hungary, Turkey, and Romania. Many of their old legends are very similar and were passed down from generation to generation these stories begin with the matriarch of a family the mother who has taken care of the home and the family for years they have all depended on her to keep them clothed fed and under a clean home that is the reason it is all the more tragic when she is suddenly and unexpectedly taken ill the symptoms were mild in the very beginning and she would experience a slight cough in her lungs Maybe a mild fever. Managing the family, she expects it is caused by the change in the weather, as Romania does get severely chilled during the winter months.
1: What in COVID?
0: You're going to find a lot of similarities (laughs) between the COVID pandemic and this.
1: Oh, shocking.
0: Mm. Well, for our mother, she ignores the illness and continues on with her daily chores. Over the next few weeks, however, the illness worsens. There is now a chronic coughing spell that causes her chest to painfully ache when she breathes, like (laughs) COVID-19. Yeah. She is also bringing up vast amounts of phlegm, and with each coughing episode, there is also blood. Uh (gasps) Uh-oh. The illness is also taking a toll on the rest of her, as she has lost all appetite, is having severe weight loss, and experiencing night sweats. She caught the consumption. Jumping ahead, aren't we? (laughs) Slow your roll. Slow my roll. The town doctor has finally been called into the home to treat the woman, but he is unable to find the cause of her suffering. All he can do is recommend bed rest, warm broth, and to wait and see. The family, now responsible for her care, tends to her needs night and day. Even the youngest of the children visit her sickbed, often to try and cheer her up. Over the days and nights, the woman has grown weaker until she finally succumbs to the unknown illness and dies. The family is devastated, but they must strive to carry on. The poor mother is given a proper funeral and buried in the small church's graveyard at the end of town, where the family visit her every Sunday. The tragedy does not end there, as now the children are then taken by the illness. First, it is the eldest daughter who falls ill to the same symptoms and the same fate. The youngest children also become victims, causing a stir to the people of the village. It is an attempt to bring an end to these string of deaths that her sons dig up the mother's body. They cut her in two and then rebury her.
1: Wait, what? why are they take it out on the mother?
0: That's what this whole podcast will explain.
1: Oh gosh.
0: But in this story, the sons dig up her body, cut her in two, but then they rebury her.
1: Okay.
0: A few weeks later, another child dies. The mother is exhumed for a second time, but now, she is found to be in one piece with no sign of any wound.
1: Um, I'm kind of shocked because that seems supernatural.
0: To the sons, this was also supernatural. So then they take her body to a remote forest and place it under a tree. The story goes on to say that there, they disemboweled her, took out her heart from which blood was still flowing, they cut it into four put it in the hot cinders and burnt it till it turned to ash. They then took the ashes and gave it to the children to drink with water.
1: Oh, <coughs> okay. Well,
0: it was in hopes that this tonic would cure them of any disease and protect them from the vampire mother.
1: Seems like an episode of a story I watched. I don't remember what it was.
0: This is an old classic story from Romania. The body of the mother is then put on the fire, burnt, and the remaining ashes of the body are buried.
1: Oh, I know what it was. It was one of the new episodes of American Horror Stories.
0: So they're taking a page from this story? I think so.
1: That's awesome. I didn't... Oh, wow. Okay.
0: Well, there you go. Something that you didn't expect a connection so soon. No. In the story, the death cease and it was the belief of these immigrants from Europe that the dead could strive to continue their existence by feeding off of their family until either their corpse was properly destroyed or until the last member of the family was killed. A paranormal being able to come from beyond death to feed on the living. The people who had seen these types of events spread the stories And eventually, some of those familiar with the vampiric legends of families being drained of their life essences would then make their way to the new country, America. Chapter 2 Vampires Come to America.
1: (laughs) Yay! Woo! Oh, wait. Not cheering?
0: I wouldn't. As the story goes on, you're probably going to cheer a little less. Okay. The terror of these vampires made itself known for the first time in 1784 in the community of Wellington, Connecticut. It was on the 22nd of June, 1784, the Connecticut Courant newspaper ran an article which has become highly significant for hunters of vampires and vampire lore. The article read that a foreign doctor claimed a certain cure for cases of what was being called consumption consumption
1: i saw that on am dreadful
0: it was during <laughs> the same time period so the late 1700s early 1800s uh, the illness consumption was so named because due to the way in which the victims would waste away as though consumed by the illness to the medical sciences of the time it was completely baffling and untreatable eventually leading to death. In this case, the Johnson family of Wellington, the doctor proclaimed that for members of the same family having died from the same disease, that the dead bodies needed to be dug up and examined. He said that if a sprout or a fresh vine was found growing from out of the breast or the vital organs, then the body was considered undead and able to spread its effects on the rest of the Johnson family. In keeping with the doctor's recommendation, the body's remains must be consumed in fire. This procedure was supposed to work as an effectual cure to the family. Now the Johnson family had, in the last two years, lost two family members, a son named Amos and a daughter named Elizabeth. Now, a third child was said to be gravely ill with the same disease. The doctor instructed their father, Isaac Johnson, to dig up the bodies of his dead children and search for signs of plant growth through their vital organs. Plant growth? Mainly sprouts and vines. Wow, yeah, okay. On June 1st of 1784, the bodies were dug up. When one of the bodies was found to have under the coffin small sprouts about an inch in length growing from it, the doctor told Isaac that he should burn the weed as well as the hearts in order to rid the family of the blood disease.
1: So not in the coffin, but under the coffin. Correct. Like within the earth.
0: In the earth, right underneath (laughs) of the coffin. Wow,
1: it's really weird how something would grow there.
0: That was what he was saying, and that's (laughs) where the supernatural aspect came in. The corpses were then exhumed and the organs were removed. The doctors believed that destroying any plant found growing from the bodies would save a surviving family members was ridiculed at that time. In June of 1784, a Hartford, Connecticut newspaper described him as a quack doctor. It said that the public ought to be aware of this impostor and was, however, the earliest evidence that any New Englander seriously entertained a belief in vampires of this sort. Many of the community agreed with the doctor, and the rest of the family was unscathed by the illness after the procedures. Fifteen years after the ritual, Isaac Johnson suffered a tragic death on December 23rd of 1799. While carrying the timbers of a newly erected church, He was pinned to the ground by one of the timbers and was killed outright. His blood was said to have remained visible on the wooden beam for more than 30 years within the church.
1: They still used it?
0: I'm sure at that time it was kind of critical that no wood go to waste. Okay. This blood may have been seen as a divine retribution by many for his actions in 1784 either in the sacrilege of exhuming the bodies of his family or could it have been caused by some dark, unseen forces for revenge in their destruction? The Vermont Historical Magazine published an article in 1884 writing that, quote, Among the superstitions of those days, we find that it was said that if a vine or root of some kind grew from coffin to coffin, Those of one family who died of consumption were buried side by side. When the growing vine reached the coffin of the last one buried, another one of the family would die. The only way to destroy the influence or effect was to break the vine, take up the body of the last one buried, and burn the vitals. The vine became a symbol of the undead's ability to still draw life of the living.
1: So yeah, I see where a lot of the old time witchcraft and urban legends come from. It's kind of weird that they all started with actual people doing unheard of crazy things. And it just kind of travels through the centuries and becomes kind of fact within the community what you need to do.
0: Fear does strange things. Uh, When modern science or the science of the times fails you, then you have to start looking for other answers. And the answers that they came up with was the undead. (laughs) Chapter three, the invisible killer. The fact that there was something causing the death of these families was undeniable, but was the undead responsible? The epidemic of consumption in the late to mid-18th century struck terror into what was then a very early society. The United States was just recovering from the American Revolution, and the government was in its infancy. The public didn't have the awareness of disease and its causes that modern technology provides today. Consumption, now known as tuberculosis, was one of the prominent causes of death during the time period in North America, as well as in Europe. By the year 1800, one in every 250 people in Eastern USA was dying of consumption. Consumption accounted for 25% of all deaths. This pandemic triggered a widespread panic as it swept through New England and the surrounding areas. So if you think COVID-19 was scary imagine this where 25% of all deaths was caused by the disease
1: right well I mean it happens every few years
0: and we try and fight it off every few years yeah at this time it was unknown that the bacterial infection was being spread airborne due to the small households and the need to tend to their own ill family members when one family member contracted the disease the other members inside the house would also be quickly exposed and infected. When science and medicine failed them, old fears from the old country would give reason and methods to overcome. Uh Uh-oh, here we go again. Paul Barber wrote in his book, Vampires, Burial, and Death, that the consumption disease outbreak stretched so far and so quick that darker forces had to be at the source of it. People who could not depend on medicine of the time to help them were actually prompted by the elders to seek out these so called vampires to stop them from destroying their families. Even if there was no undead walking the streets of America, that did not prevent the belief that they could still reach from beyond their coffins to feed. Mm. Worse is that there would be many cases that supported that belief in the New England vampires.
1: Okay, my history is not good. Neither is my English. Um, But is this before or after the witch trials? This is after. So it's kind of impressive that they didn't go after witches. I mean, what the heck?
0: From what I've learned from what I've learned about the witch trials, everyone kind of was embarrassed by what they had done during the witch trials, and the less said about that at this time was considered best for everyone.
1: Okay, so now it's not a witch, it's a vampire.
0: They're just shifting their target of who to blame. Chapter 4: The Manchester Vampire. Rachel Harris Burton and her husband, Captain Isaac Burton, lived in Manchester, Vermont during the end of the 18th century, and life had been good to the couple. They planned a long life with many children, but that would come to a tragic end when the 20-year-old Rachel fell ill to the pandemic in 1790. After the long illness, she died and in 1792 was buried locally. As is common, a year or so later, her husband remarried to his second wife, the Powell, only to have his new wife fall victim to the same terrible wasting disease. Uh-oh. Barely recovering from the heartbreak of his first loss, he tried to prevent the same fate for his new bride. Medicine had failed him the first time, so he turned to superstition for a solution this time. Suspicion soon fell upon the deceased Rachel as the source, drawing the very life from her husband's new wife. The community took drastic action to end what they saw as a dire threat. They became fixated on the tragic situation and accusations emerged that Rachel, the first wife, had become a demon vampire. In an attempt to ward off the undead, the residents exhumed her body, then burned it at a nearby forge. This was the first documented case of such a treatment against a vampire. The villagers took out the liver, heart, and lungs, or what remained of them, and burned them to ashes on the blacksmith's forge of Jacob Mead. Timothy Mead officiated at the altar in the sacrifice to the demon vampire, who it was believed would be still sucking the blood of the then living wife of Captain Burton. Such was the excitement of this case that from 500 to a 1,000 people were present. This account was documented by a judge John S. Pettibone as the eyewitness of the transaction. Unfortunately, Burton's new bride succumbed to the disease and died regardless. The disease never spread any farther, convincing the townsfolk that the demon vampire curse of Rachel Burton had been ended.
1: See, me, I would have gone the other way. I would have blamed him, like he was a carrier.
0: But he showed no signs of being sick.
1: Yeah, but can you, you can be a carrier... They, didn't not ha- they
0: did not understand carriers at this time. Yeah, the whole thing about being someone who had, could be diseased but not be sick was not uh, known at this time. So, they ignored him and went straight to the supernatural Rachel as a demon. Oh, well, why not? You know. Now, the spread of the vampire panic, however, did not end there. Chapter 5 a strange superstition. An early vampire novel titled Varney the Vampire or The Feast of Blood retells of an another incident of a New England vampire that spread as far west as Scioto County, Ohio. The family of Philip Saladay came from Switzerland in 1789. There, they bought and settled on a lot in the French Grant Soon after the opening of the country for settlement, consumption seemed to have followed them as the wasting disease developed itself in the family sometime after their location in Seattle County.
1: That's how you take out a town.
0: Or at least <laughs> the very family. The head of the family and Samuel, the oldest son, died from the disease others in the family soon began to manifest the same symptoms of coughing up blood and extreme weight loss again the medicine of the time was called in to try and cure the family by a process which had been practiced in many instances but without success so the surviving members of the family resolved to resort to a strange cure from their home country They brought forth members of the community, exhumed the bodies of the two men almost two years after their death and burial. When they went to disinter one of the victims, they discovered that his entrails were still intact. There was no sign of any rot. This was proof that they needed to support their belief that Samuel, the son, was a vampire and still feeding off his living family. They disemboweled the body, burned his entrails in a fire, and then they presented that to the presence of the survivors. This was accordingly done in the winter of 1816 to 1817, in the presence of not only the living members of the Saladay family, but many spectators who lived in the neighborhood. There was even a Major Amos Wheeler of Wheelersburg who was employed to disembowel by taking the still present heart liver and lungs from the sacrificial victim Samuel Saladay. The Major then and committed the entrails to the flames to provide an eternal rest to the family. But, like the other superstitious notions with regards to curing the disease, it proved of no avail. The other members of the families continued to die off until the last one was gone only one member of the family bloodline survived the epidemic a george so here we have another family that was pretty much wiped out by disease but the blame was placed on samuel chapter six the burning heart frederick ransom of south woodstock vermont became infected and died of consumption on valentine's day of February 14, 1817. He was only 20 years old. Without the knowledge of modern medical intervention, Ransom's family faced a bleak outlook. Some doctors recommended bloodletting, others tried to treat the disease, desi- others tried to treat the disease with alcohol or tannin, and when the medical cures didn't work, the family became desperate and again turned to folklore for answers. The father of the family, who had heard of the grisly consumption remedy and had faith in it, was sure that Frederick's illness would soon befall the remaining family. Fearing that his undead son was feeding off the remainder of his family, he had his son's heart removed after the body was exhumed and destroyed it in fire while the afflicted inhaled the fumes after the valentine victim's heart was remains was buried 15 feet deep a seven-ton slab of granite from knox ledge was placed atop the pot holding the heart and the hole was filled back in they were very serious about keeping the undead from coming out of this grave
1: and knox what was it knox
0: knox ledge it what was, was a the t-
1: significance
0: Uh, It's just a town where they would uh, chisel and cut and present uh, stones of granite. They provided a seven-ton slab of granite to basically place atop the grave of the pot that held the heart of Frederick. The ground, so desecrated, was purified with fresh blood from a bull this the elders of the town felt surely would get rid of the town of vampirism
1: ah they should have probably used a goat I hear goats work
0: <laughs> and
1: where did you hear goats work no, no it's in all the movies right
0: okay you
1: sacrifice a goat and everything's better
0: well here they went with a bull so
1: but as I like goats so I wouldn't do that well okay, I want a baby maybe, goat. They sh-
0: maybe they should have went with a goat because as expected, This did not work, and Frederick's mother, sister, and two of his brothers died from the same illness. See? Told ya. His younger brother Daniel did survive and lived into his 80s. It was Daniel Ransom's memoirs that included the descriptions of how his father burnt the organ of the heart in a blacksmith's forge. To make the story even creepier some years later a new legend came from the history of frederick ransom as inquisitive adventurers tried to dig up the vampire sacrifice neither slab nor pot could be found anywhere on the grounds of the cemetery yet sulfur and an otherworldly roaring deep within the earth emanated from the hole they quickly abandoned their excavation and nothing had ever been heard from frederick ransom since (laughs) so it just goes to show you shouldn't be digging for things you shouldn't be digging for chapter seven coffin by the river banks according to the providence journal in 1874's village of peacedale rhode island a 53 year old man named william rose with the help of his friend charles harrington exhumed the bodies of his son and daughter which were buried at a cemetery near the shore of the Sakotak River in South Kingston. The siblings had died of consumption previously. When the rest of the family started showing signs, he at once took steps in an attempt to save his remaining family. He had heard the stories of the New England vampires and the methods in which to prevent their curse from spreading. He believed them, and immediately exhumed the bodies with a plan to burn their hearts and consume the ashes. His son had died of the disease twelve years prior, and when the body was exhumed, both his coffin and body were found to be all but destroyed by decomposition. However, when he raised the body of his daughter, had been in the ground and buried for seven years seven years it was said that her coffin was in almost perfect condition and that she was only partially decomposed something was staving off the final
1: rot how does this work i mean how how long does it take to decompose in a coffin
0: it kind of depends on how the body is prepared and how tight the coffin is most of the time it's water that gets into the coffin that causes the decomposition to go faster perhaps in this case uh, the son who died 12 years ago the coffin wasn't very good but when the daughter had died maybe the coffin was better or placed in a drier area there's a lot of things that could explain it seven years is still really excessive right. that's
1: what I was thinking you know and I, I don't know what the limit decomposition is but seven years sounds like
0: well
1: okay the mummification
0: procedures in Egypt there's bodies still pulled out from thousands of years ago that you know you can still well yeah but they were mummified well mummification can happen even accidentally
1: really okay yeah
0: you just need really dry air okay to William Rose this was the only proof that he required that she was wasting away the lives of the other members of the family Removing what was left of his daughter's heart, the man set it on fire, watched it burn, and then consumed the ashes mixed in with water. With his fears of vampirism resolved, William Rose did live on until his eventual death in 1911. So he had a long life free of consumption after he consumed the ashes of the heart, the burning heart of his
1: daughter. Wow coincidence maybe not maybe not (laughs) the story of William
0: Rose in his daughter's coffin does have a strange connection to his friendship to a George Brown a friendship that would lead to the most famous case of New England vampires oh nice pull in the vampire Mercy Brown nice The story of Mercy Brown is the most well-known involving New England vampires, and it is probably the one most of our listeners have heard of before. It begins with a man by the name of George Brown, the patriarch of his family. The other members of the family included his wife Mary Eliza, his son Edwin, and two daughters, Mary Olive and Mercy, who all lived in Exeter, Rhode Island. In December of the year 1883, mother and wife Mary Eliza was the first to fall victim to consumption and tragically died. Much like the old legend from Romania, she had been the backbone of the family and was very close to her family members. This closeness resulted in the unknown spread of the disease to the other family members. And within the following year, Mary Olive, at the age of just 20, suffered the same fate as her mom. In 1891, Mary Olive's brother, Edwin, known as a strong and healthy young man, also contracted the wasting disease. His health saw a rapid decline. Unable to bear with the loss of his only son after having lost his wife and one of his daughters, George wasted no time and sent Edwin away from New England in the hopes of saving his life.
1: (laughs) Saving his bloodline.
0: This is true. You will notice that he is very determined uh, to save his son's life. To rid himself of the all-consuming disease, Edwin was moved away to Colorado Springs Sanitarium, which was designed to treat those who were suffering from consumption. It was the hope that the warmer climate would save the boy, and for some time, although still suffering from the coughing and wasting away, he clung to life. When Edwin was strong enough to return to Rhode Island in January of 1892, he arrived just in time to discover his 19-year-old sister, Mercy, was now in the grips of the disease. She was bedridden suffering for months, and it appeared that she was now on the brink of death.
1: Oh, she wasn't good enough to go to Colorado?
0: Like I said, (laughs) it seems that the focus was on saving the life of Edwin for the family.
1: Saving his bloodline. Saving his name.
0: Unfortunately for Mercy, she died at the all-too-young age of 19. Even worse, her obituary simply read, miss mercy lena brown who has been suffering from consumption died sunday morning that's it that was all that was written about her wow yeah her fame came after her death obviously because they were apparently the only family in the area affected by the disease it was suggested to george that his family may be cursed perhaps by a vampire. Though the townsfolk did not use the term vampire, the newspapers of the time certainly did. Not only that, but such was the level of superstition at the time, people began to believe that one or all of the Brown women were undead and were thriving off of the life force of the strong and young Edwin. George Brown was faced with great pressure from a scared community and asked for permission to exhume his wife and the daughter's bodies. If the brown women showed any signs of life, their vital organs had to be destroyed, a ritual that was hoped to stop the spread of the contagion and save Edwin's life, not to mention the others in the community who may be affected. The Patriarch was also friends with the previously mentioned William Rose, who also visited Exeter, and he confirmed his own situation and dealing with the vampire curse. Remember, he had stopped it with the burning of his daughter's heart and consuming the ashes, and now was free from consumption. The local doctor, a Dr. Harold Metcalf, thought that the ritual was absurd, but agreed that George had to come up with some solution to calm down the panicked townspeople. George Brown reluctantly gave four friends permission to have his wife's and daughter's bodies exhumed, but he refused to be present. So, on the morning of March 17, 1892, the bodies of Mary Eliza, Mary Olive, and Mercy were raised from the cemetery in Exeter, then known as Shrub Hill Cemetery. When Dr. Metcalfe, who had tended to Mercy during her illness, went to the cemetery as requested, he found that the men had already arrived and had taken up the body of Mary Eliza Brown. It was then that the bodies of Mary Olive and Mercy were exhumed. Both the mother and the daughter Marys had been in the ground for many years by now, so little remained of their corpses, apart from traces of mummified flesh. But, when they exhumed the young Mercy, they found her body to be extraordinarily preserved, with blood still present in the heart. Even flicks of blood were said to be on her lips.
1: Wow. There so, are... how <laughs> long was it since she died?
0: It was, only, it was only a couple months, about a year. Okay. There are also arguments that Mercy had been placed in a vault at the rear of the cemetery for two months prior to burial because the ground was too frozen and hard to dig. It had been in January when Mercy died, and the cold weather of Rhode Island may have been the reason decomposition slowed down. Right. The stiff body of the poor girl was also said to be in a different position from what she was in when they buried her. There is a possible theory for this that she may have been buried alive due to the poor judgment of the medical examiner. Oh,
1: God. That's horrible.
0: Yes, this was a real fear at this time of the history. Also reported was that her hair and nails had grown significantly since her supposed death. Dr. Metcalf tried to explain the second characteristic was natural after death where nails and hair don't actually grow, but the skin recedes and as it pulls back it makes the nails and hair look like they're growing. The logic fell on deaf ears to the community of Exeter at the time. The townspeople took the body's still preserved condition as evidence that Mercy Brown was one of the undead, a vampire. It was concluded that she was the culprit and from beyond the grave she was psychically feeding off of the blood of her dying brother. Following her exhumation, her heart and liver were removed and burnt on a rock. The remaining ashes were mixed with water and then fed to Edwin. The beliefs, Very gross. The belief was that this act of cannibalism would reverse the symptoms. The ritual ultimately failed however and Edwin Brown died on May 2nd, 1892 at the age of 24. Another family destroyed. Now what remained of Mercy's violated body was finally laid to rest at Shrub Hill Cemetery. After her reburial, a number of people from Exeter did claim to have previously seen the girl's body walking in the fields at night. Everett Peck, an Exeter-based descendant of Mercy Brown, would later recall one incident in which he had in the 1960s. He said that he was at Shrub Hill Cemetery, standing near Mercy's grave, when he saw a bright ball of light hovering above the ground next to her grave. I was scared to death, he said, I've never seen anything like it before or since. Perhaps this is in response for the desecration of her grave and body, and she is now unable to rest. Sadly, the headstone at Mercy's grave has been defaced over time. People have chipped away at the stone, taking away sections as a souvenir. In August of 1996, the gravestone was stolen, by whom is unknown. Luckily, it was returned a week later. Why someone would steal her gravestone,
1: I have no idea. I don't know, why would people steal gravestones nowadays? So you've seen the Halloween movies, everyone always steals Judith Myers' headstone. Of course, it's normally Michael Myers himself, but you know, just saying.
0: Okay, so it's possible (laughs) that Mercy Brown as a vampire is now stealing the headstone? Sure. Okay, (laughs) a new twist to the story. Regardless though, Mercy Brown's grave today can be found at the same cemetery, which is now known as Chestnut Hill Cemetery, behind a small white Baptist church at the rear of the cemetery. Her crypt is also still there that once held her body. It's strongly believed that Mercy Brown was the last exhumed corpse in which we became known as the Vampire Panic of New England. Or was it? Chapter 8 Nellie Vahan Being separate from any other case of the New England vampires, the details in the West Greenwich case of Nellie Vahan was never published until 1977 when it was documented in the Rhode Island newspaper, The Westerly Sun. The oral stories of Nellie the Vampire were told to high school students by a teacher at Coventry High School, Rhode Island, sometime in the late 1960s or the early 1970s. It has been theorized that the teacher was merely retelling the story of Mercy Brown, but had forgotten her name. To the students enthralled by the story, They at once began their quest to search out the grave of this New England vampire. They stumbled across the wrong plot at the Plain Meeting House Baptist Church in Greenwich, 15 miles west of the correct cemetery, Chestnut Hill. By some strange chance of fate, the students assumed that they found the correct grave when they found an inscription on Nellie Vahan's tombstone that said, quote, I am waiting and watching for you.
1: Wow. <laughs> I want that on my gravestone, please.
0: It did get quite <laughs> a stir. <laughs> to the excited teenagers, they assumed that Nellie was the vampire in the story they were told about, and so a new urban legend was born. Some, there are some details that are quite strange. There's no vegetation growing on the grave of Nelly Vaughan. Wow. Advocates attribute this oddity to the belief that the site is cursed and therefore nothing living could survive on or around the tombstone as the vampire buried beneath draws on their life force.
1: Yeah, because that's really odd to see. I mean, because it's not long before a grave is covered over in grass
0: well to the non-believers they hold that this is simply a case of wear and tear the fact that her grave is so commonly visited touched and tampered with with teenagers and other onlookers yeah creates the no vegetation having any chance to claim growth on the stone
1: that's a good point too i like mine more
0: and the story's better with yours <laughs> The consumption disease and the burning of organs have been added to the Nellie urban legend over time. She was given the same wasting disease with vomiting of blood as many of the other vampire stories, where the truth is Nellie died of pneumonia, not consumption, on March 31st, 1889. Her body, however, had been exhumed on October 26th of 1889, like the graves of the other New England vampires. This was supposedly not for the checking of signs of undead life, but by the request of the mother so that it could be moved from the family plot to the West Greenwich Baptist Church Cemetery. Supposedly, this didn't involve any kind of mutilation rituals or burning of any organs. Good. The evidence of the body being exhumed fed the popularity of the urban legend, leading storytellers to believe that her spirit was restless after being moved, and this created a vampire. The inscription on the gravestone, I am waiting and watching for you, was probably intended to mean watching from heaven. A far more pleasant message, but the urban legend tends to dwell on the more sinister one, and has been passed down over the years since the legend began.
1: Yeah, I never even caught that connection. I was going cynical.
0: <laughs> You're not alone. And that's what feeds the urban legend. Due to vandalism over the years, the gravestone was eventually moved to an undisclosed location. But as far as ghost hunters and curious tourists are concerned, this is only added to the mystique of the vampire Nellie Vahan. Wow that's pretty good. I kind of like this
1: story. This was a good episode.
0: I know we're coming to the end but the classic Hollywood vampires in the movies may have been filled with the undead turning into bats and seducing young virgins for their blood. However these cases of the New England vampire panic had, do have their own influences on popular culture. Right. First there's Bram Stoker. The famous author responsible for Dracula in 1897, it was reported that he had files of newspaper accounts of the Mercy Brown story. The fervor of the fears of an undead creature feeding off of the living yet resting in coffins may have helped him craft some of the vampire lore for his masterpiece. Some of the stories of Mercy Brown can be seen in the story of Dracula. There is also a strong possibility that these stories of vampires in Vermont and Rhode Island influenced horror writer Stephen King. Much of the aspects in the urban legends like that of Nellie Vahan, were at the height of the popularity at the same time he wrote Salem's Lot, a vampire story set in the 1970s New England. So as Nellie Vaughan's popularity grew, so did the book Salem's Lot.
1: That is actually one of my favorite Stephen King movies.
0: Well, as you read it, you might have Nellie Vaughn's story to thank for it.
1: It left me me as a child scared to look out my window.
0: (laughs) Now, although the understanding of a consumption has evolved into diagnosing and treating for tuberculosis, the stories and the fears at the dark places in our minds remain. Do undead creatures possess the ability to feed off of life until the last member of their family has perished?
1: I think movies and legends and urban legends all take its way from all the mess that happened years ago, like I mentioned earlier. I did look up what I was thinking about this American Horror Stories, and it's actually episode No, Season 2, Episode 4. It's called Milkmaids. It's not about vampires or uh, witches. Uh, It's just a really weird adaptation of something about a small New England town that is consumed with smallpox. And one of the ladies has these lesions and sores. And um, they believe that the cure comes from this... um, Hus (laughs) hus <laughs> that comes from her body. And it later on goes into people uh digging up the dead and burning their bodies and drinking the ashes and things like this. So kinda looking at this, if any of our listeners want to go back and watch that, I think it's kinda kind of a cool how they pulled some of that from these stories.
0: They definitely seem to have pulled the same kind of fears and panic in the townsfolk. Absolutely. And I'm kind of glad that, well, are we past that with COVID-19? Did we still have the same fear and panic? Maybe not of the undead, but... Yeah,
1: there was a lot of fear and panic. I don't think that kind of stuff will ever go away.
0: It's scary that diseases have that effect on people. Well, being sure to keep up the disinfection protocols within the house every time someone coughs, I suppose this is a good time to make our way back out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Fassilian and Fassilian Studios for our introduction music. We are on social media and love to hear your stories and opinions about vampires, especially those of New England. You can reach us on our Facebook page within the Miss Podcast, as we are also on Instagram and Twitter. Or just send us an email at within the Miss Podcast at gmail.com for any of you who would like to share your thoughts. We hope you enjoyed our story about the New England vampires and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look closer when you're passing a cemetery and remain constantly curious goodbye everybody
1: bye you bloody vampires